The first implication is that if you take seriously your responsibility to image God, it will drive you towards community. It is very difficult to be a successful image bearer if you live an individualistic life. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to Disillusioned, Distracted, and Discontent, part four of six from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul originally taught this series at Grace Community Church's Sundays in July seminar. Today we'll learn more from Pastor Paul about the genesis of his study. To paraphrase, Pastor shared that in his pastoral experience, quote, a number of issues crossed my path that appeared to have a common source. They seemed to be associated with discontentment." End quote. Over a period of several months researching this sermon series, he realized that the problems, at their root, could be the result of nine societal-cultural disconnects that have invaded the church. Today we'll hear Pastor summarize his findings and how Scripture can clarify issues for Christians who are seeking answers. Here's part four of Disillusioned, Distracted, and Discontent. It was about a year ago that I started to think through it because there were a number of issues that had kind of crossed my path in one way or another that when I was really trying to analyze the issue and think through what's wrong here, it was an issue of discontentment. So often there were people that our lives were overlapping with and we were speaking to them and trying to minister to them. And, and really the problem was the lack of contentment. So you know, I started to think through that topic, and my goal was to put together a sermon series on contentment. And I quickly realized that it's not as simple as simply turning to every passage in the Bible that has the word contentment and then preaching that passage. It's not that simple. Though that is a good study to do, and I would recommend that you do it and learn what the Bible says specifically about contentment, I quickly realized that discontentment is very, very rarely, if ever, isolated to one particular area of somebody's life. And so often it's forming part of a much bigger web of issues. And so thinking through that, maybe about a year ago, the seminar series grew and grew and grew. And it got me to where we were last week, which is basically analyzing what are the main issues that face us, confront us as a culture, as a society. And last week I spoke not so much about what's going on in the church, but what's going on in society, which we're part of. And I gave you nine points. I suggested that there were nine prevailing issues, all of them connected and overlapping. Uh, just by way of review, the first was to say that we're no longer citizens. The idea of being a member of a city, recognizing your dependence on others. We're highly interdependent. We need each other. And the problem is that we have lost our sense of dependency, not that we don't exercise that dependency, but we've lost our awareness of it. The way in which we lean upon each other daily has kind of left our focus. And what that does is it then leads us to start to pursue a more individualistic life because we don't think that we need each other anymore. 
Point number two, we are now consumers. That would be the opposite of a citizen, is that we are now somebody or a society that predominantly consumes. I'm not speaking primarily here about shopping habits, though that's the easiest and most evident manifestation of the problem. A consumer is someone who acts basically according to preference, self-interest, without any consideration for their responsibility towards others. And over time, that then just pushes you down this route of isolated living. Number three, we act according to preference and not authority. So I talked a lot about choice, the fact that we have many, many, many options in every area of life, and that's not actually a good thing. It doesn't serve us well. And because society places emphasis on the act of choosing rather than the object of choice, that means that every choice, every object becomes equally valid. Whether you do this or this doesn't really matter just so long as you are able to exercise a choice. And so if you flip that problem on its head, what it means is that over time, there is no place for authority anymore in society. Nobody has a voice to say this choice is more valid than this one. Uh, nobody's able to speak into a situation and say, actually, not all choices here are equal. Authority gives way to preference. Point number four, we do not know the difference between a need and a want. We blur that line because we have options, because we can choose, and because we have a desire towards something, we quickly start to render it as a need when actually it's just a want. It's just a desire, but we start to understand it to be a need. And that's a very difficult and dangerous spot to be in. We forfeit our contentment every single time we do that. Point number five, we're marked by a restlessness. So we live in a democracy, which is a good thing, uh, but the democracy needs to be well organized and, and held in balance, those ideas of freedom and equality. Uh, but we are more concerned with the freedom side of things, so much so that we are preoccupied with this idea of breaking free from any external constraints that have been placed upon us. If we perceive there to be anything that has been placed upon us as a constraint, we want to break free from it, no longer considering whether those constraints might actually be good for us. There are often times when it's good to break free from constraints that are put upon us. Uh, oftentimes, it's not a good thing. And we don't ask that question any longer. We just want to break free. We just want to move on to a new situation. And so that creates, over time, a people who are restless, who are always looking for something out there that they perceive to be better, always rendering their own situation as not as good as something out there, though we don't know what it is that must be better. And the problem there is that that restlessness will eventually give way to anxiety, that we actually become an anxious people, a people who live in fear, because we feel like we're missing out all the time. Number six, we've become escape artists. One of the ways that we deal with that anxiety is to escape, is to try to create a new existence that is not actually real, and it is free from all the complications of life. And this comes about in many different ways. Social media would be an obvious avenue by which we try to escape from the realities of life and define ourselves according to a much simpler existence that isn't actually real. And that's not a good thing. Point seven, we've put off responsibility. We prolong that period of not assuming responsibility longer and longer and longer, way into our 20s or even 30s, supposing that happiness is tied up to a freedom from responsibility. Eight, we have lost a sense of virtue. Virtue at its core being this idea of self-control. Uh, self-control, self-restraint 
imposed upon ourselves in order to achieve a specific end, normally a moral or an ethical standard. And we've lost all sense of that. We don't impose that self-control on us any longer. Uh, again, because we're just consumed with having what we want and pursuing this false notion of freedom. And then number nine, we're overly invested in the present. We are perhaps more than ever disconnected from our past and very inconsiderate of our future. We just live in the now with grave consequences. So there were my nine observations, and there's more that we could add to that. And I finished the talk by saying, you know, this whole discussion lands within the area that we would call sociology, or more broadly, anthropology. Anthropology being the study of man. Who are we and what do we do? And we're just looking at societal trends and the behavior of people. And problems often occur because you have the wrong starting place. Or a solution doesn't work because the solution didn't begin in the right place. And so I finished last week by saying, for a proper anthropology, you have to turn to the Bible. And more than that, for a biblical anthropology that's going to actually confront these issues, you have to begin at the very beginning, on page one. That is to say, we have to consider what it means to be made in the image of God. That's the first anthropological statement in the Bible, directly anthropological talking directly about man and woman, God said, let us make man in our image. So we have to understand what it means to be made in the image of God if we're to understand what we're supposed to be doing here and how the Bible intersects with all of these issues. What I want to do today is to think carefully about what that means and to flesh out some of the implications. My goal is not to give a point-by-point -point response to all of the issues raised last week, so I don't have a nine-point sermon for you today. I will talk about some of them along the way, and then you can continue to ponder and think about it uh, after today's session. But I do think if we begin here, all of these issues will be confronted in one way or another. So with that said, if you have a Bible with you, then open it to page one, uh, chapter one. Um, I'm just going to read the last few verses of Genesis chapter one, starting at verse 26. Genesis 1 verse 26 and following, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The Old Testament scholar David Klein said the scarcity with which the doctrine of the image of God is mentioned in Scripture is out of all proportion to its importance. You're not going to find many references throughout the Bible to the image of God. There's only a handful, this being the first one, you can turn to Genesis 9. It's mentioned as part of the Noahic covenant. You can turn to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He mentions it there. And then, of course, James mentions it. 
it's not in many places, but that is not to say that it is incredibly important. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? When we ask questions like that, there are two avenues by which we can explore the answer. One is to look at previous revelation, to look at what the Bible has said about this topic before, and that then informs the text that we're in. That doesn't help us here. We're in chapter 1, verse 26. (laughs) We don't have much more Bible before us, and we certainly don't have any mentions of the image of God before verse 26 in Genesis 1. So that's not going to help us in this case. The other thing that we can do when we ask these kind of questions is to look at the cultural context in which this text was written. So we do this all the time. Think about, just by way of example, let's say we're in the Gospels and we're, we're studying a passage where Jesus heals somebody with leprosy. Well, one of the things that we do when we study those passages is say, tell me about leprosy in first century Palestine. I want to know more about that disease at that time. And, and, and as we do a cultural study, that starts to inform our understanding of what's going on in the text. And we can do the same here in Genesis chapter 1. So what we do is we look to the cultural context in which this was written, and the, the particular culture that we talk about is the ancient Near East. And what we find is that in the ancient Near East, there's a lot of mentions of the image of God, a lot of mentions of this idea of the image and specifically the image of God. So we look at the ideologies of Egypt and Mesopotamia, and we find that there are many writings that invoke this same idea of the image of God. And nearly every time, the idea is that of a representative. You would often find in these cultures, a king is spoken about as the image of God. He is the image of God, meaning he is the representative of his deity on earth. Then in turn, as that king goes and conquers a new land, he would set up oftentimes a statue or a rock, and that rock would be called the image of the king, meaning that rock or statue is now representing him in that land, simply affirming he's now conquered here, and this is where he now rules and reigns. Now, if we understand the image idea simply to mean representative, immediately that has a few implications for us. The first implication is that I would suggest a change to the translation. Okay, so uh, the word in is actually just one letter in the original language, and it's a preposition, and prepositions in most languages are very, very elastic. They can do a lot of things, okay? So in is a valid translation. I don't think it's the best translation here, I would suggest that 126 should read, let us make man as our image. You might paraphrase and say, let us make man as our representative. That would be the first change that I'd recommend. The other implication is to understand that this concept of the image of God speaks more about function than it does about being. So we talk about The image of God, is it an existential or an ontological idea? Don't get thrown off by the big words. Existential, why we exist. Ontological, who we are. Is the image of God primarily existential, functional, about purpose, or is it about being? And if it's true that the idea is is representative, then it actually speaks more to purpose than it does about being. It talks about our job description. We are the image of God. We are the representatives of God. Now think about that, and I'm going to say something here that maybe challenges you. 
though it is theologically true that we are like God, primarily in his communicable attributes, that truth is not bound up in the idea of being made in his image. So that's what we normally think about, isn't it? When we talk about the image of God, we normally think that it means we are like God. We share his communicable attributes. If the idea of the image is to represent him, technically speaking, though theologically true, it's not bound up in the image of God. And, and again, it stands to reason if we look at those other cultures, the king sets up a rock in this new land that he's conquered. The rock or the statue does not need to look anything like the king. And oftentimes, most times, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be a statue that looks like his facial features. It is just a rock, but it functions as the image. It doesn't have to reflect him. Now, before you throw your rocks at me, uh, let me just put you at ease. Theologically, it's true that we do look like God in his communicable attributes, and that's bound up in the following phrase, after our likeness or according to our likeness. So these are not synonyms, which is sometimes how we think of them. You know, I was warm and cozy. What does that mean? It means I was warm, but I'm using two words probably for emphasis and the words are functioning as synonyms. They mean the same thing. I was warm and cozy. This is not what Moses is saying. Let us make man as our image after our likeness. They're different ideas. Let us make man as our image, as our representative, and let us fashion him in a way that he reflects us according to our likeness. So that's where we get the idea that we reflect God in many ways but not actually through the idea of image. So image speaks more about job description. Okay, so that would then lead us to ask the question, well, how do we fulfill our job description? How do we successfully image God? How do we represent him? And we can say a number of things. If we look back the way, and here we do have a biblical precedent, what do we know to be true of God so far in Scripture? So far, we know that he is the creator and specifically that he brings order out of chaos. Okay, so opening few verses of the Bible tell us the earth was formless and void. Formless, meaning just that, it had no form, it had no structure, and it was void, it had nothing in it. And God brought order out of chaos, he gave it a form and a structure, days one, two, and three of creation, and then he filled it so that it wasn't void, days four, five, and six of creation. He brings order out of chaos. So we might say that to successfully image God based on the biblical precedent that we've been given so far would be to go about our work in such a way so as to bring order out of chaos. We need to be reflecting God, representing him, be successful image bearers. We need to be concerned with bringing order out of chaos. We can go forward and say a little bit more than that. Uh, what comes immediately after verse 26 and 7 God blessed them, verse 28, referring back to the truth of being made in his image. God blessed them, and then he gave them an instruction. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. And I think the same ideas of bringing order out of chaos are wrapped up in that. We are to be on this earth in a kind of governing way, having dominion, so as to fill the earth and bear fruit. Now, 127 and 128 are often quoted separate from one another and not seen as one thought. They should be understood as one thought. You are made as my image, as my representative. You represent me here on earth, God says to Adam. Now fill the earth. 
Okay, you are my image. Now go and fill the earth. If I was to paraphrase, I'd say that the mandate that God gives to Adam is to make God's glory known the whole earth over. You're my image. Now fill the earth with my image. Make sure that the whole earth knows about me. Fill the earth with my glory. So already we've come up with a fairly detailed job description. To be successful image bearers is to bring order out of chaos, to exercise some kind of governance in such a way that we're having dominion, and I would say the filling idea carries with it a multiplying effect. He wants us to not just do it here, but he wants the whole earth to be filled with successful image bearers. So as we do our work, we want to do it in such a way that other people start to image bear also, start to successfully fill their job description. We could pause here and say immediately, just simply understanding what it means to be made as the image of God has implications for some of the things we were talking about last week. The first implication is that if you take seriously your responsibility to image God, it will drive you towards community. It is very difficult to be a successful image bearer if you live an individualistic life. Because you have to image bear to someone. I mean, you could bear the image of God to the trees. You could. But I think there's a greater manifestation of God's glory when you bear the image of God to another person. And so against the individualistic tendencies of the present age, you have to be someone who is driving yourself towards community. You want to be in meaningful relationships with others. I'll give you a very, very simple example of how I sought to apply this in my life. I used to work in an administrative job at the church. And because of the nature of the job, there was just a lot of communication. Lots of things that had to be said, had to be asked for, had to be sought. And I just had this very simple rule of thumb. If I can, I will speak to the person face to face. Okay, so, uh, you know, I'm sat in my office and on the other side of the campus is Dave Muxlow and I need to ask him a question. Oh, I just want to send an email, but I'm not going to. If I can, I'm going to get up and walk across the campus to find him so as to have a personal interaction. If for nothing else, because it's another opportunity to image God, to have a meaningful relationship. Now, if I couldn't do that, my next step would be to have a phone call, still preferable to the email, still more tangible, more relational than the email. And if for some reason I couldn't do that, then I would resort to the email. It just lacks all personal relationship when you're firing off all these emails all day long. So I would just try to drive myself, as it were, towards community. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Christians must remember that even though we've been justified at our point of salvation, the battle for godly character must be waged until we reach our glorification in Christ. This truth is amplified in the Apostle Paul's writings, particularly in Romans chapter 7, reaching this apex when he cries out, quote, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? End quote. A wonderful realization then comes, which plays out in his very next paragraph, leading into chapter 8, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you'd like to learn more about being strengthened in Christ and finding assurance of your salvation, 
come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts. There you'll find our audio archives, including this series and much more. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. While you're on our website, would you consider making a gift to be part of what God is doing through this outreach ministry? Your support will help us continue to reach thousands of souls with the good news of Jesus Christ. On the homepage, timelesstruthtoday.org, select Donate to make your gift of any size. Join us tomorrow for part five of Disillusioned, Distracted, and Discontent. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.